Chapter 6 of Cordelia the Magnificent. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Brittany Lynn. Cordelia the Magnificent by Leroy Scott. Chapter 6 Shadows of Secrets. Dinner over, Esther Stevens went upstairs to see if all was going well with little Francois. Cordelia took advantage of her departure to say how pleasantly impressed she had been with Gladys's stepsister. "'Yes, Esther is a dear,' agreed Gladys. "'A perfect dear.' Even had Franklin not given orders to learn all she could, Cordelia's human curiosity would have prompted her to be inquisitive concerning this stepsister and her purpose in being at Rolling Meadows. As it was, Cordelia had two motives for asking questions, and she asked them. Gladys was willing enough to talk and led the way up to the privacy of her own sitting-room. Cordelia already knew something of Esther, and the account she now heard was added to by bits of facts and deductions which she picked up during the following days. Gladys's father had died when she was ten. When Gladys was twelve, her mother had taken as her second husband Mr. Stevens, a rich and daring western speculator, recently left a widower, who had just come confidently to the east to promote some large mining enterprises. After his marriage, he had decided to settle in New York and show Wall Street that it possessed no monopoly of financial genius. Esther, then eighteen, had been so outraged by her father's second marriage, regarding it as an affront to the memory of her mother, who had been with her only a few months before, that she had flatly refused to come east and be a part of her father's new family. Three years of trying to outwit Wall Street had resulted in Wall Street collecting to itself every dollar Mr. Stevens had brought as a challenge from the West. A few months thereafter, he had collapsed from a bad heart and had died within the hour. Esther had been in California, and there had been no time for her to come to his funeral. He had never touched a penny of the great fortune of Gladys's mother, which included the large fortune left by her father, and on her mother's death, when Gladys was seventeen, in school at Harcourt Hall, the fortune had passed on intact to Gladys under a will, its character due largely to the suggestions of Mr. Stevens, which provided that the entire estate should be in the control of trustees, save only the income, until Gladys had married or reached twenty-five, in either of which events the principal was to come to her in unhampered possession. The trustees were also named as guardians of Gladys's personal well-being. The death of her stepfather and later of her mother had left Gladys without a single blood relative, and the three tired and busy trustees, bethinking themselves of the stepsister and desirous of avoiding every responsibility that could be evaded, had written Esther a pleading note presenting the care of Gladys as a charge which would have been Esther's father's had he lived. Time and her father's death had softened Esther's resentment, and out of sense of duty to her father, she had resigned her position as English teacher in a Los Angeles high school to become mother, aunt, older sister, chaperone, what not, to the seventeen-year-old product of the socially ambitious mother and of Miss Harcourt's widely admired institution. If Esther Stevens had different ideas about a young girl's upbringing, she had entered Gladys's life at too late a period, and with too little authority, to have tried to put those ideas into practice without arising the defiance of her charge. So, perforce, Esther had accepted the situation as she had found it, trying to do her father's duty, and, during the first months, taking a lot of snubbing that tried her patience. And when, after her graduation in 1916, 
Gladys became captivated with the idea of becoming a nurse in the very smart hospital of the very chic Countess de Crecy, then in America campaigning for funds and volunteers. Esther had also gone as a nurse and remained in France with Gladys for three years. While there, she had co-jointly with Gladys legally adopted the infant Francois, whom they had taken from one of the many Paris institutions that war was constantly overcrowding with parentless children. Gladys had made her work as historian of her stepsister as brief as possible. She was eager to get to her own affairs. Cordy, as I told you, I have been hurting myself too much these last two or three years, and I feel I've been all wrong. Oh, of course, I had good reasons, she justified herself. This last came out with tense suddenness, but she did not enlarge upon her reasons. But I can't stand things that way any longer. I've got a new program scheduled. I'm going out a lot, and there's going to be some life at this place. Lots and lots of people. That's what I want you to help do. Put life into this place. To do just this had long been Cordelia's business as a guest. You can count on me to do what I can. And I think you are right in deciding to have your friends about you. I've spoken to a few already. She hesitated. Jerry Plimpton has promised to come. But when he promised, he of course knew you were to be here. What I said about him that night out at Jackie Thorndyke still goes with me, Gladys. You and I are not going to have any difficulty about a man. Until almost midnight, they discussed plans for the social revolution at Rolling Meadows. Long after she was in bed, Cordelia lay thinking about this household, which for its own good, she believed, she had been set to study and to watch. Esther Stevens the unobtrusive, ever-present Mitchell, the child Francois, and yes, Gladys. Some puzzling questions emerged from her patient thinking. Why should Esther Stevens, good-looking enough, by nature independent, competent, any real or sentimental obligation she may have owed Gladys now fully paid off, remain here in what was practically a position of dependence? For Gladys had again made plain that Esther had not a cent of her own, and Gladys herself, now that she was concentrating upon the matter, wasn't it more odd that Gladys had maintained a rather distant attitude towards her friends all these years? At length, wearied with self-questioning, Cordelia fell asleep, only to find herself after a time sitting up in bed suddenly awake, with the sense that she had just heard the sharp cry of a woman. This was followed instantly by her definitely hearing the commanding voice of a man, the words she could not make out. She sat for a long moment, straining her ears, but after that dominant male voice, there was only silence. Obeying an impulse, she quickly got out of bed and into a dressing gown and slippers. She crossed to the door and cautiously peered forth. The hall was lighted but empty. She stepped through the door, silently closed it, and remained in a moment's indecision as to which direction her search should take her. As she so stood, around a corner toward her came the noiseless Mitchell, dressed in the formal clothes he had worn at dinner. Startled, she shrank back against the door, but he showed no slightest surprise as he approached her. "'Is there something I can get for you, Miss Marlowe?' he asked in an even voice. She had recovered enough to already have a fib explaining her presence abroad. "'No, thank you. I couldn't sleep, so I thought I'd go out for a little air. Francois has been having a restless night. "'I was just going to see if I was needed,' he said." With a bow, he passed on. To turn her fib into the semblance of truth, Cordelia went down and stood on the porch for several minutes. Then she slipped back into her room and into bed. 
The man's voice she heard had undoubtedly been Mitchell's, but the woman's voice, if there really had been a voice, had it been Gladys's or Esther's? She wished Mr. Franklin had been more open with her and given her more of his knowledge of the situation in the household, of his client and her friend. It was difficult to help Mr. Franklin straighten out this situation, starting as she was in utter ignorance. But Mr. Franklin was right in the main fact that he had told her. There certainly was something strange here. She thought and thought. Morning was beginning to break before her tired brain slipped into a swoon of weariness and she slept again. And when she woke, her mind instantly returned to that outcry of a woman, the man's commanding voice, Mitchell prowling about fully dressed, and again she considered Gladys, Esther Stevens, the attitude of which toward their partnered son, the boy's ready acceptance of the care of the neutral-tinted butler. For a brief space she had an impulse to go to Mr. Franklin, in compliance with his request that she report upon every slightest detail. But she decided against this course, as yet she only had the faintest of shadows, and one cannot transport or communicate a shadow. For the present, she would just wait and watch. Watch without seeming to notice anything. She must be very adroit. Always very, very adroit. On the second day, in the casual manner one may use in discussing servants, Cordelia again asked Gladys about her butler. Again, Gladys quickly veered from the subject, as she had done the previous night at dinner. This was further confirmation of Cordelia's suspicion that there was more to Mitchell's place in the household than merely being its butler. Cordelia made a careful survey of the other fifteen servants at Rolling Meadows. They all seemed no more than just the better class of servants that are to be found in rich obedience, for they recognized him as an able, experienced domestic commander. None of them, Cordelia judged, had any part in the mystery she suspected. The same conclusion she reached concerning Jean— Jean was just a high type of the well-trained French governess, nothing more. So all of them Cordelia dismissed from her consideration. Mitchell, of the servants, was in this mystery alone, if mystery there really was. And every day her interest was more and more intrigued by the butler. Was that butler's face of his merely a mask? Did the mask ever slip off? What sort of person would be revealed if ever that mask did slip its strings? This increased interest was due partly to her sense that from the first day, Mitchell had several times been watching her. She could feel his eyes intent upon her. She throbbingly wondered if he suspected her, suspected that she suspected him. But when she quickly turned toward him, he was busy about some butler's task and not even facing toward her, or else he was approaching her, his face in its usual butler's mask, with the offer of some trifling butler's service. She never once caught him gazing at her, never surprised on his feature an unbutler-like look. And yet she was certain, certain, that he was observing her, thinking of her. Why should Mitchell be studying her? There was another item that added to her curiosity. On that first night when Francois had gone off so gladly with Mitchell, Gladys explained his willingness by saying Francois took to everybody. Cordelia noted that this was not the fact. The boy got on well with all the servants, but Mitchell was his preference over them all, even over his governess. He would even slip away from Gladys and Esther to be with Mitchell. To this study there came a brief interruption, the reunion of the class of sixteen of Harcourt Hall. Cordelia went to this with warm eagerness. 
Without her being fully conscious of the fact, the school had been the strongest single influence in Cordelia's life since the death of her father. The reason for this is fairly obvious. For four years, except for vacations, which she had mostly spent with school friends, no other place in which she had been had had a light quality of permanence. Except for those four years, she seemed always to be visiting. Even her stays at home had the character of brief visits. At Harcourt Hall alone had she really unpacked and settled down. In consequence, it seemed more of a home to her than the expensive apartment on Park Avenue, which her mother maintained as the most important item of that family appearance, which she had to show the world. Besides Gladys, Jackie Thorndyke, Eileen Harkness, and a score of other sixteen girls were present. In every detail that day was a triumph for Cordelia. As presiding officer, she knew just how to handle these willful young women, and, for their part, they fairly smothered the heroine of their school days in their enthusiasm. It was, good old Cordy, and just as ugly as ever, old dear, and impulsive flinging of arms about her all through the day. It was all so splendid to Cordelia, it flushed her with warm affection for her friends, and with confidence in her own powers. She felt she could do anything, anything. At the end of the afternoon, she had a few minutes alone with that thoroughly staid figure of dignified portliness that was Miss Harcourt, whose manner toward her was august but deferential. Once in an impulsive moment during her last school year, Cordelia had kissed the rarely kissed cheek of Miss Harcourt and had thereby almost unposed that lady. But although Miss Harcourt was still an important person to her, and although Cordelia was warmly alive with good wishes for her former preceptress, Cordelia made no attempt to kiss Miss Harcourt now. "'I'm so glad you were with us today, Miss Cordelia,' Miss Harcourt said in her model of drawing-room graciousness. "'I have designs on you. You know, I still consider you one of the best products of Harcourt Hall. In fact, the very best. And I am always talking about you. Can't you run out again tomorrow? I'd like to arrange a little affair for you to meet some of my younger girls informally. They have heard much about you.' They are very eager and will be highly complimented. Cordelia herself was highly complimented. I'm very sorry, Miss Harcourt, but my engagements won't permit my coming. Miss Harcourt was also deeply disappointed. Little more was said, and there was no time for it. Cordelia congratulated Miss Harcourt on the success of the school during the year now ending, and wished it an endless succession of successful years. Miss Harcourt thanked her, and when Cordelia started away, she said, I hope your sister will make as good a name for herself here as you have, and I hope that she will be as happy here. I'm sure she will be. Goodbye, Miss Harcourt. Goodbye, my dear, replied Miss Harcourt, in that voice that was a model of dignity and deference. And remember, Miss Cordelia, any time you can come, and it will be an honor to us. Outside, Cordelia experienced difficulty in breaking away from her school friends. As her car rolled away, Jackie turned to the group on the veranda steps and cried, "'All together, fellows! Three cheers for Cordy Marlowe!' The cheers that instantly followed almost choked Cordelia, and there were tears in her eyes as she turned and flung a kiss. It was a wonderful place, good old Harcourt Hall. The gracious lawn, the stately trees, the drive that curved among them all moved her deeply. And when she went through the iron gates— the precise old porter, who had known her since her hair was in a braid, raised his cap to her with a permissible smile of friendship. She was almost impelled to fling him a kiss. 
Yes, Harcourt Hall was really a wonderful place. End of chapter 6